This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him, And to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study in the word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're so thankful that we have your word, that this is not the word of men about you. This is not a word that contains your word, but this is from Genesis 1 through Revelation 22, it is your word, it is uh, what you have revealed to us for us to understand who you are, who we are, how we are to live before you, and how we are to think in a way that is not only consistent with but conforms to your thinking as revealed in your word that your your word from Genesis through Revelation hangs together as one. What is said in one book is reinforced and supplemented in another. There's a progression, an enhancement, a development of understanding and clarification as we read from the beginning to the end, that we can see that that which is prophesied, promised, and patterned in the Old Testament is fulfilled in the new so that we can have confidence that this is your word and that we can trust it. So, Father, now as we look at your word, we pray that as God the Holy Spirit uh, teaches us that we might respond to it, trusting it, and that we might understand its application in our own lives, that we might further have confidence in all of our riches in Christ and that we might live on that basis. And it is in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. Charles Francis Digby Moole was known to his friends as simply, as simply Charlie. He was one of the few great uh, evangelical scholars, Greek scholars, in the Anglican Church, which Britain produced in the 20th century. I just mispronounced his name because I always have. Discovered this morning, it's actually pronounced Mole. Mole was born in China, in Hangzhou, near Shanghai, where his father, Reverend the Reverend H.W. Mole, was, and his mother were missionaries. He was born to a family of Anglican pastors, And he, on that heritage and on that basis, he took that heritage uh, to a totally new level. He was awarded the, there we go, he was awarded the uh, CBE, that is, he was a commander of the British Empire. If I can get anything to work this morning, there we go. He was awarded the as a commander of the British Empire. This is an order of chivalry for military as well as civilians. He was also a fellow of the British Academy. Uh, he, he was born in 1908, and he went to be with the Lord in 2007. He was, um, one of his friends said at his memorial service that if there was anyone who was untouched by Adam's original sin, it might have been Charlie. His friends also called him Holy Moly. (laughs) 
He's written a number of commentaries and grammars. And when I mention people like this, it's not that I agree with everything they say or I'm recommended their writings, but that they say something that is significant, which I want to point out. And he said in his commentary in Colossians that this section, that is the section for, that we are studying from Colossians 2.4 to 3.4, was one of the most important of St. Paul's descriptions of what is achieved by the death of Christ and one of, the most, one of his most emphatic reiterations of the theme of the incorporation of believers in Christ. I wanted to start off with that quote this morning because I want to go back just a little bit, spend a little more time looking at something we've already spent some time looking at, starting in uh, verse 11. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. I've spent a lot of time over the last, I think, four or five years focusing on especially verses 12 through 15. I think what is said in verses 12 through 15 is one of the most profound statements about forgiveness that we have in all of the Scripture. And this is indicated, as I've highlighted the, the participial phrase in the English in 2.13, having forgiven, that should be translated, because he had already graciously canceled or forgiven all of our transgressions. But what the apostle says in verses 13 through 15, the more I just sit and read through this, it's really grounded on understanding what's said in 11 and 12. Now, I spent a lot of time talking about this doctrine of sanctification, both in terms of our study in Romans on Thursday night as well as, as we've gone through this section here. But as I look at this, I see that there is... There's a little bit more to this than I have said before. It's interesting to see how God the Holy Spirit sometimes brings things to our attention. The Word of God has many different layers, and by that I don't mean there are different layers of interpretation, but that God the Holy Spirit in the economy of the use of language packs so much in. God is the original multitasker, and multi-communicator. I'm not saying things that violate or change the hermeneutical principle of the single meaning of the text, but it's important to see how all of the text of Scripture interconnects with the rest of Scripture. And sometimes we don't always see that the first, second, third, or fourth, or thirtieth, or fortieth time through a passage. That's why it's so great to go back and read the Word again and again and again, and then as we study, and, we're, and I find when I'm studying and teaching through something, it's interesting how, um, as you look back on it, you know it had to have been the hand of the Lord. Other things happened that focus your attention on another dimension of something that you've been studying or teaching. So last week, I had an opportunity finally, after two previously aborted attempts at going on a deer hunting or pig hunting trip, I got a chance to get away a little bit with some old friends and go uh, deer, uh, deer hunting, pig hunting. I didn't get anything, but I really didn't want to. I just look forward to the time to get away and spend some time with some, some old friends and just get out in the woods. I love getting, getting out in the woods, and, and I enjoy sitting out in a deer blind. And I got a chance uh, one evening, I guess it was Wednesday evening, it was very pretty, and there was... Uh, looked like there was about a half a dozen or more male cardinals who were having a lot more fun with the corn at the deer feeder than any deer did. And that was about all I saw, but it added a lot of color to what was otherwise a pretty colorless day. Uh, but it's just great to sit out and in nature and hear things and watch things. And, and it was good to be with the men I was with. Three of the men I was with, I've known for many, many years. One was Don Barber, who, was Gordon White, who is Gordon Whitelock's son-in-law. 
For those of you who aren't familiar with Camp Penile, Gordon Whitelock was the founder of Camp Penile, led my mother to the Lord and was a major influence in my life. And he went to, the, went to be with the Lord about seven years or so ago, uh, not long after uh, I moved back to Houston and we, we uh, had, uh, had started West Houston Bible Church. And his wife, Alice, just went to be with the Lord on Thanksgiving uh, afternoon. And that was why we had aborted the trip prior to Thanksgiving, because of her... Uh, ending illness. But uh, Don was there, the son-in-law. Don's about 71 now. Don was one of my counselors at Camp Penile when I was about 10 or 11 years of age. And then later, uh, we were uh, colleagues and worked together when I was a counselor and program director at Camp Penile back in the 70s. And he and his wife, Mary Edith, uh, were having their children, the youngest of which is Jess. And Jess came along on this trip. Jess is probably in his late 20s. Well, he would have been born late 70s, so he's probably 30-something now. These kids grow up fast. And then uh, our host, the one who had invited us, was Faber McMullen. Some of you know his father, who is a well-known cardiologist here in Houston. Faber was one of my campers, so it was sort of a kind of a generational type of thing. And like we were, we always did when we were working with Camp Penile, whenever we went on any kind of a trip, we made sure we had a Bible study and a time of singing, uh, singing together, which was really good. And Faber has a great sensitivity to pastors and the fact that we're all in ministry. One other man was there, was a pastor of First Baptist Church in Avisota. And so Faber had a Bible study he had prepared. And outside, uh, uh, he was focusing really on some other passages, other things. But Faber, and he's played, uh, some of you remember two or three years ago, he played the bagpipes here. He is just in love with his Irish Gaelic roots, and he's been studying uh, Gaelic. He and his father were studying Gaelic before, uh, just before his father died a couple of years ago, and they had reached a point where they could have conversation at the breakfast table in Gaelic. So he just loves everything Irish and Scottish and his roots. Faber McMullen is like the Faber the Fourth. So he loves those Scottish roots. So he started off talking about cairns and how in Scotland there and Ireland there among the Gaelic culture going back before the time of Christianity even, it was common for the Irish, the, the Celts, to, to build rock cairns to indicate great points in family history and whenever they had done something or lived somewhere, they would build these rock monuments. And I pointed out to him, I said, that didn't start with the with the Celts. That started with the Jews, and they did that back back in the Old Testament. And so while he was teaching, I began to think through some of the things related to how rock cairns are used in Scripture and as I was thinking about that, the Lord brought two or three different things to my mind that relate to our passage, especially understanding verses 11 and 12 and spiritual circumcision. So the title for this message this morning is Cairns, Gilgal, Circumcision, and Blessing. Okay, we're going to see how all of those things uh, intersect this morning in a very rich way spiritually. So we're looking at this passage in Colossians 2, 11 through 15, and as Paul is beginning to lay this foundation to his listeners, and they're not any different from you or I or any of the other people that we know who are fighting all of the paganism in the culture that surrounds us and trying to keep that from influencing our ideas. And when... Paul begins to deal with the issues that are threatening them. He goes back to the foundation of our position in Christ. And that position and the whole teaching that we find in spiritual circumcision is directly related to what he covers in 13 through 15, which is grounded in understanding the doctrine of forgiveness which I think is so profound. I'm, sometimes I don't think we spend enough time contemplating that. Some of us need to spend a lot more time contemplating it. Others of us perhaps not because of circumstances in our, in our own lives. But this seems to be the forgiveness, seems to be the very focal point of understanding what took place at the cross 
in terms of the character of God and his work toward us. So this idea of circumcision, as I pointed out, is directly related to that, and it's directly related to this whole concept of our, of our forgiveness. I pointed out last time that the important point in understanding circumcision, not phys- the physical rite or ritual of circumcision, but what it stood for spiritually, is that it signified the separation, the breaking of the power of the sin nature as we see it in the New Testament. Often I use this chart to communicate what the Bible teaches about the three stages or phases in the Christian life. That phase one is justification, takes place in a moment in time when a person trusts in Jesus Christ as Savior. This is also referred to as positional sanctification. Sanctification is a an English term. You could also use the words consecration or maybe even separation because it comes from a group of Hebrew and Greek words that focus on being set apart to God. And this focuses on our being positionally set apart to the service of God at the instant of salvation, at which time we are freed from the penalty of sin. But it is that act of justification that happens in an instant of time when we have trusted, believed in the promise that Jesus is the promised Messiah who died on the cross as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and a fulfillment of Isaiah Isaiah 53. And that lays the foundation for phase two, which is our spiritual life. We call that progressive or experiential sanctification, where we are, we realize in our experience more and more as we grow spiritually that we are here to serve the Lord. We serve the Lord first by growing spiritually, growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, growing in our understanding of his word, learning how to think as God would have us to think, and learning what it means to be freed from the power of the sin nature. That is the focal point of our spiritual life. And then third, we have the ultimate sanctification or final sanctification when we die physically or for that one generation where there will be the rapture. They will go immediately to be face-to-face with the Lord when we no longer have a sin nature. We still have a sin nature after we're saved that's just as nasty, wicked, evil as it was before we're saved, but we're freed from its tyranny, and in the spiritual life we have to learn to say no to the sin nature and yes to God and to his word. In Ephesians chapter 1, there are a number of different things that the Apostle Paul points out that are parallel and which... which uh, elucidate some of the same ideas that he has in Colossians, especially in terms of this verse. Ephesians 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with some of thee. No? Most of thee. No. All of the spiritual blessings... Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Nothing, nothing's left out. And it is stated clearly that this is in Christ. Now, that phrase we've talked about in the last few weeks in Colossians 2, that this is the essence of the problem the Colossian believers are facing because there are all kinds, all manners, as I've indicated, of philosophical systems and worldviews and ideas and opinions on how to live life, solve problems, and be uh, fulfilled in life and reach your full potential, etc. But they are not according to Christ. But in Christ, we have everything, and we don't need anything else. Anything else actually takes away from being in Christ and what we have in Christ and eventually wipes out our spiritual life. That we have everything in Christ... And since Christ is fully God and God has everything in him by definition, then we have access to all that God is 
by virtue of our position in Christ. That's part of what it means to be blessed with, all, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, Paul, in verse 11, states that in him we're also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. So he's distinguishing the physical act of circumcision, which was in Judaism for only for the males, obviously, but it was indicated or emphasized in first century Judaism as the focal point of any kind of blessing from God and salvation. No matter what you did with the law, if you, the entry point was circumcision. Now, what we see even in the Old Testament, I want to make this clear, that what Paul teaches here in terms of spiritual circumcision is not something new with him. We find this in the Old Testament. And in the last few weeks, I've just used two verses to support this. I want to show you some new ones this, e- this morning. We have physical circumcision is really a physical rite that stands for a spiritual reality. Now, that's important to understand that. It is a physical rite, but it is designed to teach certain things that are true in the spiritual realm. And to capture fully what that physical rite represents is to understand what it also foreshadows, which is our position in Christ, which is the idea of heart circumcision, spiritual circumcision made without hands, which as we've seen is described also in terms of the New Testament doctrine of the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit. Now in the Old Testament, the two passages I've mentioned previously about being circumcised in the heart, that that was the real issue that God was looking for among the Israelites, not the physical act of circumcision, but what it represented, spiritual circumcision, which meant that they were owned by God, separated unto God for his service. Uh, those two verses were Deuteronomy 10:16 and Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. But we also have other verses in the prophets. For example, Jeremiah 4.4. Jeremiah 4.4 says, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your hearts. Now, wait a minute. See, this isn't physical circumcision. He's addressing, he is addressing the nation. Now, who is Jeremiah. Jeremiah was one of the last prophets in the first temple period. He is sometimes referred to as the weeping prophet because he wept over the destruction of Jerusalem and his lament over that destruction is recorded in the book of Lamentations. And so Jeremiah brings a message that God is bringing judgment upon the southern kingdom of Judah and is going to destroy them through the Babylonians. And he constantly is challenging the nation with their spiritual failure. And so the command is to circumcise themselves to the Lord, to circumcise, to take away the foreskins of their hearts. If you go to that chapter and you look at the context, in verse 1, Jeremiah says, quoting the Lord, if you will return, O Israel, says the Lord, return to me. Now, we studied this phraseology before. That word return, sometimes it is translated repent, but it really has that idea of return. It's the Hebrew word shuv. And if you go back into Deuteronomy, that there is a promise at the promise of curses and blessings at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, just as we have in Leviticus 26, and the promise and the prophecy that at one point Israel will become so rebellious that the Jewish people will so reject the God of the covenant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the God of the covenant with Moses, that God will remove them completely from the land that he promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But God hasn't broken the promise, for that promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was an eternal promise, and the sign of that was circumcision. But God, in Deuteronomy uh, 27 and 28, outlines the fact that they will so disobey God that 
that they will uh, leave. He will remove them from the land. But then he says the promise in Deuteronomy 30, but if you return to me, Shuv, when you return to me, then I will bring you back from where I have scattered you throughout the entire world, and I will restore you to the land. And the language in Deuteronomy 30 is the language of the, the return, the establishment of the new covenant promised in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, an everlasting covenant, and the establishment of the eternal messianic Jewish kingdom. The condition, though, is this spiritual circumcision. This isn't a Pauline doctrine. It was actually a Mosaic doctrine that is being reaffirmed by Jeremiah. He says it again in verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 10. It says, To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Indeed, their ear is uncircumcised. Now, that's a real shift in imagery, isn't it? Their ear is uncircumcised. It's not set apart to God. They're not listening to God. They are listening to the, as Paul puts it in Colossians, they're listening to these empty, deceitful philosophies and worldviews and idolatrous, idolatrous religions of the world. Their ear is uncircumcised, and they cannot give heed Three chapters later in, Jer- in Jeremiah 9.26, he refers to the pagan nations surrounding Judah, uh, including Judah within that list, Egypt, Judah, Edom, the people of Ammon, Moab, where Ammon and Moab today, Hashemite kingdom of Jordan, whose capital is Ammon, the cognate of Ammon. Uh, Ammon, Moab, and all who are in the farthest corners who dwell in the wilderness, for all these nations are uncircumcised. And all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in their heart. What was their problem? The problem, surface-wise, was idolatry, which is what the rabbis emphasized after the return from the exile. We don't want to get back into that idolatrous situation, but the problem of idolatry was merely the surface problem. The problem was an internal problem. The problem was a failure to be oriented to God spiritually, and to trust in him. Idolatry was simply a symptom of a deeper spiritual problem that they were not circumcised in the heart. They were not set apart to God positionally. Ezekiel uses this similar terminology, speaking of the future millennial or the future messianic kingdom when a new temple will be established in Jerusalem. And there he says that none will enter into that temple who are uncircumcised in heart and in flesh. Uh, states that both in 44, Ezekiel 44, 7 and Ezekiel 44, 9. So what was the role of circumcision in Israel? In order to understand that, because it really gives us a very nice picture of the role of circumcision in, and spiritual circumcision in the Christian life, I want you to turn back with me to uh, the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 4. Joshua chapter 4. Before we get into that, I want to give you uh, three review points on circumcision. First of all, Circumcision was the sign of the Old Testament covenant, the eternal covenant, the unconditional covenant that God had made with Abraham. Three aspects about that covenant need to be remembered. First of all, it's an eternal covenant. It is as good today and as true today as it was then. That means that whether the Jewish people are in obedience or disobedience to God. Now remember... Even in the Old Testament under Jeremiah, were they obedient or disobedient? They were disobedient. Were they still God's chosen people under the Abrahamic covenant? Yes. Uh, The northern kingdom of Israel that had already been disciplined according to the Mosaic law and taken out of the the land by the uh, conquest of the Assyrians in 722 B.C. were still under the Abrahamic covenant. As Christians, we believe that the Jewish people were taken out of the land again in divine discipline because of their rejection of Jesus as Messiah in A.D. 70. It's no different from what happened previously in 586 B.C. and in 722 B.C. It's the same pattern, and that is a failure to to, uh, 
to believe in the promise of God uh, for salvation, but it didn't break the Abrahamic covenant. God, that covenant is still with Israel. It is eternal. It is also unconditional. So the statements that are made there, for example, in Genesis 12, uh, 2 and 3, that those who, those who uh, bless Israel, I will bless, and those who curse Israel, I will curse, are just as true today as any other day. And what one of the applications of that is, is that, pay attention to this. There are too many people who don't understand this. Israel as a nation today is just as much the people of God as Israel was under Jeremiah, under Isaiah, under any of the prophets, under David, because that promise, that Abrahamic covenant was never related to their obedience or disobedience, their spiritual maturity or their spiritual apostasy. They are the people of God regardless of whatever we might think of their spiritual condition. Now, there are those today who think that that it is fine and it is great to have a foreign policy in this country where we treat every nation the same. We give every nation money or we don't give any nation money. The flaw with that is the Abrahamic covenant is as true today as it was in Abraham's time, and that means that the Jewish people are still God's chosen people. That means you never, ever, for any reason, no matter what you may think of their spiritual condition, treat Israel like they're any other nation because Israel never has been like any other nation and Israel never will be like any other nation because Israel... And Israel alone is called by God as the apple of his eye, and they are in a personal, national, eternal, unconditional covenant with God that will never, ever change. There are three aspects to the Abrahamic covenant. God promised them a land. He promised them descendants or a seed, which has its ultimate fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ who is the one who will provide that ultimate worldwide blessing. But through the descendants of Abraham, there would be blessing of other kinds to all of the world, and we see that today. So circumcision is the sign of that covenant. Second point about circumcision, and this is one of those things, it's just a blinding flash of the obvious. I saw it this morning. How many times I've studied this? I'm thinking as I read through the passages in Isaiah and Ezekiel, I'm thinking because a couple of those could relate to uh, the nation in terms of their spiritual disobedience, so that would be similar to phase two in their spiritual life failure. But as I thought about circumcision, it hit me. Is, Is circumcision phase one or phase two? Can it ever be phase two? Can it ever relate to the spiritual life of the nation? No. Why not? How many times can you be circumcised? Only once. Kind of obvious. It's like salvation. You're only saved once. You're not saved multiple times. It's not a repeated event. So circumcision spiritually always stands for that initial point in time in an individual's spiritual life when they are saved, justified, when they enter into personal relationship with God that never changes. However, because we sin... We constantly have to go back to we have to go back to our salvation, the basis for our salvation, and we confess our sins not to regain salvation but just to gain forgiveness. We see that same thing in the Old Testament. We see that specifically in the events in Joshua for many, many years probably since I was at least a teenager, if not more, I have heard the statement made that Joshua is the Old Testament illustration of Ephesians. And I think that's true. In the book of Joshua, we have a physical battle taking place where there is a positional reality for the Israelites. The land is theirs. But they have to take it experientially. That is very much the theme of Ephesians and also the theme, part of the theme of Colossians that we have everything in Christ. It is positionally ours just as the land of 
the Canaanites was given by God in toto to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But they had to take it experientially through battle. And we have to exploit what we have positionally in Christ in a spiritual battle so that we can then take uh, take control of all of the areas of human viewpoint and sin that dominate our own thinking. So Joshua, the historical events of the conquest, illustrate for us numerous spiritual principles in terms of exploiting what we have in Christ so that we can experientially grow. Now, chapter 4 is the story relates to their entry into the land. Actually, chapter 3 describes that entry into the land where they cross the River Jordan. And as the high priests approach the lead, the nation, into the promised land, they come to the River Jordan. And if you've been there recently, you wonder why this is such a big deal because you can almost jump across it in places. But that's only because in modern times, uh, through irrigation, they have taken off so much water that it's a major, major problem. And you get to the area uh, where we're talking about, and here's a map, uh, this area just above the uh, Dead Sea uh, where they cross over from the area uh, east of the Jordan, the Transjordan, cross the Jordan River into the uh, land itself just, uh, just east of Jericho. And you can see on the map the location that we're going to be talking about, Gilgal, right here, that this was quite a large, wide flowing river. It is in the spring of the year because we know that when they, they come to their encampment at Gilgal, they will celebrate the Passover, which comes in the spring. So the Jordan River is filled with the snow melt off of Mount Hermon. They get quite a bit of snow up there. In fact, if you want to take a good skiing vacation some winter, go ski Mount Hermon. They get a lot of, lot of snow up there. So the river is full, and it is a wide-flowing spring flood torrent. And as the high priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant approach the water, they have to trust God and just walk into the flood-level river. And as they lower their feet to the water, the water recedes underneath their feet so their feet don't get wet. They have to trust God, though, and their re- the reality of God's promise has to be more real to them than their visual perception because visually their experience tells them they're stepping into the water, but God is stopping the flow of the water as they step into it so their feet never touch the water, and by the time their feet hit the ground, the ground is dry. Now that's trust in God. So they're led across the river, and we're told in chapter 4 that when all the people, first verse, had completely crossed over the Jordan, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Take for yourselves twelve men from the people, one man from every tribe, and command them, saying, Take for yourselves twelve stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan. So they've got to go back into the middle area where it's still the river's held back. From the place where the priest's feet stood firm, you shall carry them over with you and leave them in a lo- the lodging place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the 12 men whom he appointed from each tribe. So you have one man, so you have 12 representatives. They go out into the uh, dry river bank, go back over to the other side where it first started, and they get 12 stones. They bring them back, and they are going to build a rock cairn a memorial statue that will remind them through the generations of what God did that day. It is a benchmark in time that no matter what happens in the future, when doubts may arise, when their children need to be told who God is and what he did for them, they can go to this rock cairn, this physical memorial, and they can point to it and they can tell what it means. This is what we read in uh, verse 5 and 6. Joshua said to them, Cross over before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan. Each of you take up a stone on his shoulder. So they were not small stones. They were large, 30, 40, 50, 60-pound stones. 
And each one of you take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel, which would be 12, that this may be a sign among you when your children ask in time to come, saying, what do these stones mean? Daddy, what's that pile of rocks over there? It's a teaching point. It's a point to go back to, to remind people in the future, 100, 200, 300, 2,000, 3,000 years later, that this actually happened in space-time history. It's not a legend. It's not a myth. It actually happened. God doesn't have to repeat his miracles in every generation because there are these rock memorials. This isn't the only time things like this happened in Israel's history. Then you shall answer them, God says, that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord when it crossed over the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones shall be for a memorial to the children of Israel. So they did so. Then the rest of the chapter describes what they did and how they um, then established this rock cairn. And they came to camp that night, which is where they were to establish that rock cairn, at a place called Gilgal. It gets its name from what happens here. Let's go to chapter 5. In chapter 5 we read that at, in verse 2 that after they have camped there, um, at that time the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives for yourselves. Now flint knives that we have discovered through archaeology were incredibly sharp. They could get them razor sharp. So this isn't something that they had to hack and hew with. This was as sharp as a fine surgical instrument. At uh, the time the Lord said to uh, Joshua, make flint knives for yourselves and circumcise the sons of Israel again the second time. What he means by that is that there had been an earlier time in the previous generation that came out of Egypt, the uh, Exodus generation, when there had been a uh, mass corporate uh, circumcision, and now this second generation, the generation that was born in the wilderness where there were, they did not circumcise this second generation. And so now is the time for them to be circumcised. So verse 3, Joshua made flint knives for himself and circumcised the sons of Israel. And what you'll find, if you're using a New American Standard NIV uh, Jewish translation, they all transliterate the next phrase due to certain sensitivities, but the King James and New King James translates it, the hill of foreskins. Verse 4 says, this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt were males, all the men, uh, <clears throat> uh, all the people who came out of Egypt who were males all the men of war had died in the wilderness on the way, and they'd come out of Egypt. For all the people who came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness had not been circumcised. So this generation needed to be circumcised. Why did they need to be circumcised? They needed to be circumcised because this identified them with the Abrahamic covenant, that they were God's chosen people. So they come to Gilgal. They established this rock cairn which is a memorial to the fact that God has given them this land and the circumcision, which happens one time, identifies them positionally with the Abrahamic covenant and the promise of God to give to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and their descendants this land. It is in the, under the Israeli covenants of the Old Testament positional truth. It is being identified with Abraham and his covenant as an analogy and foreshadowing of our identification positionally with Jesus Christ at the instant of our salvation. What's interesting about Gilgal is that its name comes from this event. Verse 9, we read, Then the Lord said to Joshua, This day I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Therefore, the name of the place is called Gilgal, based on the Hebrew word for rolling away, is called Gilgal to this day. Then what happens? Verse 10. Now the children of Israel camped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho. 
So there is this sanctification, this positional setting apart to God and identification with the Abrahamic covenant that all that they are promised in Abraham is theirs positionally. They've been identified with it, but now they have to go into battle and they have to exploit their position so that they can have in reality what they've been given positionally. And what we see in throughout the rest of Joshua and in subsequent times in the Old Testament is that the Israelites come back to Gilgal again and again. In fact, this was the original place where they set up the tabernacle. And again and again, they will come back to Gilgal and they renew their covenant with God. It's like going back to the cross when we confess our sins and say, I know I'm saved, God, because you, Christ paid the penalty for my sins and I trusted in him for salvation. But I've got to come back now because I've sinned and I have to confess my sin and get back in fellowship so I can move forward and have victory in the battle. Now, another thing that we need to recognize that's going on here because of its application in the New Testament is that there is a physical right, that right of circumcision, that is a sign of their position in, in Abraham. There is a physical right for the Christian that is baptism. This is why in the early church, believers' baptism was something that took place almost immediately after salvation. Why? Because when you trust Jesus, and I trust Jesus Christ as Savior, that's an event that happens in the mental realm. If you get baptized, believer's baptism, immediately afterward, that is a physical cairn uh, that you can go to and say, I got baptized at that time, that baptism didn't save me, but I was taught that that baptism depicted my identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And that 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 physical act of baptism taught me that I am in Christ and a new creature in Christ, and I have died to sin, and I have been raised to new life in Christ. That's Romans chapter 6. And so that tells us that for the Christian... In a, in a metaphorical sense, the cross is our cairn. The cross is what we look to as where this, our sin was paid for by Jesus Christ, where the debt of sin is canceled, as we'll see when we get into the next couple of verses in, in uh, uh, Colossians 2, and that the physical right of believer's baptism is just a, a memorial marker that teaches something about our identification with Christ so that we can go back to that in times of doubt, in times of teaching. When you have children, they say, Mama or Daddy, were you baptized? You say, Yes, and this is why. It didn't save me, but it helped me understand in a physical sense, through a physical training aid, what happened in the spiritual realm that I was identified with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection so that I am freed from the tyranny of the sin nature so that now I can live to God. As Paul says in Romans 6, we are no longer slaves of sin, but we are now bond slaves or slaves of Jesus Christ and slaves of righteousness. So it is the Old Testament examples of the rock cairn that then helps us to understand the spiritual implication here of that spiritual circumcision, that it isn't the physical act of the removal of the flesh, the foreskin, it, but that pictures something in a spiritual realm which is a separation from sin, a separation unto God, which is the core meaning of the word sanctify or holy, which is separated, set apart to the service of God. And that picture is baptism. Verse 12, buried with him in baptism. Not water baptism, not believer's baptism, but that this is what believer's baptism signifies, the baptism by the Holy Spirit. 
in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And it is that being buried with him by baptism, as identified in Romans, explained further in Romans chapter 6, verse 3, that then becomes the foundation for our, becomes the foundation for what we have uh, in Christ in terms of our uh, in terms of our forgiveness, let me get that. Oh, lost it. Let me get that next slide up there. That we, though we were dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of our flesh, we're still identified with our sin nature as unbelievers. He makes us alive together with Him. That's coming out of the water in the picture of baptism. And that's the significance of spirit baptism is we are alive together with him. Why? Because he's forgiven us all of our sins. It's all about forgiveness. And that's the Christmas message next week with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for this opportunity to go through these important principles in your word to see how the events in Israel physically, historically in the Old Testament are designed intentionally by you to be a a picture, physical picture of spiritual realities and how that illustrates, illuminates for us our understanding of our identification with Jesus Christ. That as this conquest generation was identified with Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant and the promise that the land was theirs, they were then able to exploit that, trusting in you to take possession so that the riches that were theirs in Abraham became theirs experientially. And the only reason they didn't reach a full conquest was because they failed to obey and they failed to exploit all of their riches and all of the promises that they had in Abraham that this illustrates for us our riches in Christ and that we too can have fullness of life and blessing that is ours positionally already, but that we must take it, we must take it and exploit the, the, the assets you've given us in Christ so that they may be realized in fullness in our life. And that comes only as we learn your word and we trust it and we put it into practice in our thinking and in our lives. Father, we pray that there's anyone here this morning unaware of their salvation, uncertain of their salvation. Father, we pray that this would be a time when they can make that sure and certain, simply by trusting in Jesus Christ as their Savior. So all we have to do, it's a gift. Abraham did nothing For the gift of the land, God freely gave it to him. We do nothing for the gift of salvation. But in order to exploit what is given us, we must learn to walk in obedience, to learn your word, and walk by means of God the Holy Spirit who makes it possible. Father, we pray that you challenge us with what we've learned today. In Jesus' name, amen.